Hello and welcome to this week's Hong Kong Heritage. Anders Nelson is the son of Swedish missionaries and he first came to Hong Kong at the age of four. He grew up in the hills above Sha Tin at the Tofung Shan Christian Center and was a student at King George V School or KG5. He'd join a couple of bands before a group of students had pop success with the 60s band The Continentals. Over the next two programs of Hong Kong Heritage, I chat with Anders Nelson about music and his singing and acting career. Well, I have the most amazing life in that every day is different and I, I do so many different things, but all music and entertainment related. So I'm going to be in a local film playing a stocks analyst which I, you know, I know nothing about, but, you know, it's just acting, right? Well, I did a song just before the handover telling people to be more positive and love Hong Kong. No politics, nothing, just love Hong Kong for that weekend, the handover weekend. And that went, I, I can't say viral, because that means, like, worldwide. It means, like, a billion clicks. Mm, but, but you got 70,000, right? I got close to 70,000 likes on Facebook alone. That was pretty amazing. And uh, thanks to that, a record company wants to record it. I, I just did an, a demo virtually overnight and cobbled together lots of pictures and old videos of my life. And um, <clears throat> this record company wants to do it for real, record it properly and, and add another 10 or 11 songs and put an album out at my age, you know. <laughs> so, you know, that's great. You came here to Hong Kong at the age of four. Right. Um, and the last time we actually spoke was about seven years ago oh, for Hong okay. Kong Heritage, right, right, so a little right. bit of catch up. Mm. Now, you were last time we spoke, uh, and we will uh, look at uh, some of those uh, right. sort of steps of your career, but mm. you had mentioned that you were still starring in sort of Cantonese films. And uh, now this stopped... Sorry, sorry, I have to interrupt you. I've never starred in it. <laughs> I do slightly cameo. above... Cameo. Yeah, cameo, that's a good word. You're slightly above extra, but with lines, so it's just slightly... An extra with lines. So I think they call it a walk-on role or yeah, something. Yeah, so, but you're, you're the Guaylo villain usually. Usually, yes. But last year I was in a TV series. Well, there's only one TV station left, so I'm sure we can mention them in TVB, where I was a uh, professor of vampirology. Oh, really? Yes. And um, the uh, series was set in uh, the future. So everyone else was dressed in very futuristic sort of costumes. I had been brought in to help them with a vampire infestation problem. Normally it's cockroaches, isn't it? Oh, is it? No, no. I was brought in through a black hole in the universe from the past 
and it was all done to green screen. So I had no idea what was going on, except I have to walk from A to B and then go up and pretend there's a panel and push some buttons and stuff and then say blah de blah to, to these futuristic people. And uh, when it actually went on air, I was blue. The whole person was blue, like a Smurf. Everyone else was normal, but from the future, and I was. Had they smirk. told you that before? No, no, I had no idea until someone who'd seen it had captured it on his smartphone, and then put it up on Facebook and said, "I saw you last night." And there's a little clip of me, totally blue, <laughs> uh, spouting wisdom about how to get rid of vampires. Which is, I mean, can you give any of those trade secrets away? Uh, is it garlic? Yeah, I mean, is it cross? Is it garlic? I, I could, but then I'd have to kill you. You know, you know that, right? The newsroom go, go needs watch, you. Go watch the series. Or download it. So, I mean, what happens? Does a sort of script land on your doormat? Or? Well, they usually call and say, you know, we have a role for you and uh, would you be available from certain dates? I, I've almost given up asking what's it all about because <laughs> when I hear it, I, I usually giggle like you just did. It was videoed at a very futuristic location, too. They didn't have to build any sets. It was on top of the uh, cruise terminal, right near the front. So we were in front of that. So it looked very futuristic. I mean, I just thought Hong Kong is a, is a wonderful place to film in certain ways. I mean, the architecture it is, here. Yeah. Recently, I played a almost random bad Guaylo from, I think it was 1976. And it was, I think, the third remake of the story of Loylock and Limpy Ho. Loylock, he was like the biggest drug lord ever. I mean, real person, triad drug lord back in the mid-70s. And Limpy Ho, the Chinese name Bai Ho, the two of them, I think, were in cahoots. And Limpy was called Limpy because he was badly beaten and, and one foot never recovered from that, so he limped. The role of Loylock, is played by Andy Lau and I actually saw these two people back in 1970s because playing in a band we were often asked to play at birthday parties or celebrations and we didn't care who they were whether they were police or they were triads or just you know regular business people and uh, Andy Lau is way too good looking and too handsome to be low lock but I mean that's that's, you know, the cinema. And then Limpy Ho, who actually limps in the movie, is played by Donnie Yen, who's now a megastar in Hollywood. So it's big production. I mean, big, lavish production. And I was some sort of Guaylo go-between, and I get sort of cheated by both sides. And I have what I guess the mafia would call a bagman, you know, that sort of person who collects from here and plays, who stabs me in the back, I mean, not literally, but, uh, and then goes off with Limpy Ho. And with those two, I mean, what happened, you, you knew them in the 1970s or you performed for them. Um, yeah. And uh, what happened to them in real life? I think they're both dead by now, yeah. Does the name Godber ring a bell at all? Yes, the, one of the biggest corrupt policemen who was done. Well, I knew him and his family because uh, I sat next to his son Ian in school. And that was an interesting experience because uh, I remember several sort of weekends when a group of boys were going to go to the pictures, as they used to call it in those days, or the flicks. 
And uh, there used to be an American-style soda fountain in the old Star House near what is now, you know, Harbor City and all that. There, there was an ocean terminal, but it's nothing like the one now. is fairly basic. It was a real sort of concrete terminal. And that little soda fountain on the on the corner was very popular with the with the local teenagers. So we all assembled up at uh, Caldicott Road in the government quarters there. And Ian said, Daddy, I'm going out with my mates. I need some money. And he said, well, you know where it is. So we all traipsed into the kitchen following young Ian, who opens the fridge. He opens this enormous old-fashioned 50s, 60s, Frigidaire or, or whatever it was, opens it, it two doors, you know, and opens the bottom vegetable drawer, which normally has green vegetables, but in this case had green as in money. And the old $500 bills were actually uh, much bigger than now. They, they, they were called like duvets in, you know, mean toy, which is like a duvet because they were huge. You could practically cover yourself in the winter with them. This was filled with $500 bills and he just grabbed one. And we had what was a very popular drink in those days. They were called black cows, which was a, a, a Coca Cola with a scoop of vanilla ice cream in it, you know, which if you had 12 of those, you'd be quite sick. <laughs> which, of course, we did, probably oh in the God. cinema. Ugh. So, yeah, those were the good old days. Yeah. So you came here in 1950? 50, yeah. Yes. The 18th of November, 1950. Now, you were four. What would you say is your earliest memory? Oh, that's a little bit hard to say. My family, you know, my parents were missionaries, and, and the mission station compound was in uh, the hills above Sha Tin. It's called Doufengshan. It's like a little village, all built in a Chinese style, old Chinese style. You've got the red pillars and everything, but it, it it's Christian, but it was intended to attract monks and priests of all different uh, religions from China to come down to Hong Kong, built in the 40s, I believe, to study each other's uh, religions. So it had dormitories and canteen, study rooms, a library and so on. And it, it's still there. It's become more of a ecumenical study center also for various religions. So my earliest memories were growing up there. You know, it's hard sometimes to be 100% sure whether you remember something from what your parents told you or from seeing mm. old photographs. And there is even in my possession a minute and a half of eight millimeter color Kodak film from Hunan when I was just two, three years old. And I, I think it was, you know, the feeling of continuity from Hunan to Daofengshan because it was still very Chinese. But then going to school eventually at Kowloon Junior School, then it sort of changed because Kowloon Junior and King George V School in uh, Tinkong Road, Perth Street in Homantin, where we didn't have high rise yet, but you know, it was a city versus a totally rural environment. I was going to say, even uh, if you were above Sha Tin, there would right. have been villages in Sha Tin, yeah, surely, oh, just rural. Yeah, they had. Uh, they were still in those days uh, paddy fields. Below us is Taiwai, which in those days was a fishing village, and there were farms in the hills around there. There was a, a big uh, chicken and pigeon farm called Kai Kei Long Chang, 
which had ponies for children to ride. We'd love going there because they, they raise chickens and uh, Taiwan is very famous for pigeon to this day. And of course, the Shatin Inn is on the way from Taiwan up to where this Longchang, the farm was. And uh, we'd love to stop off there on a Sunday after church and have a family meal with satay. It's still there, by the way. What, the Shatin Inn? The Shatin Inn, yes, still there. Goodness me, that must be uh, one of the long, most it is. long-staying restaurants uh, it's anywhere. Same family. It's now got a flyover above it. Now, do you remember, I mean, you would have probably sung with your parents, but uh, mm -hmm. do you remember, you know, when you first started as a kid, did you just start to sing pop songs or did you start creating your own? Well, it, it would have started in, in church, I guess, with my parents being missionaries. And my mother was very musical and was from a musical family. It was, in, in fact, her older brother who, uh, on one of our early visits to Sweden, back in those days, uh, missionaries and a lot of business people would have local leave for, say, three years or five years and then get home leave every three or five years. Well, the missionaries from Sweden got home leave every five years. So uh, when my uncle heard that my brother's son, his nephew, was musical, he sent uh, sheet music, he sent old 78 records, which, of course, had turned into basically gravel by the time they got through the postal system, <laughs> so weren't able to play those. But my father had an enormous old radio, the size of the average huge uh, sideboard, and uh, I would sneak down in the middle of the night. There were no earplugs, earphones, earbuds back, back in those days, so my ear was plastered to the speaker so as not to wake them up. So what would you listen to? I would listen to anything and everything. And would then, it have been Elvis? Or? Well, I dis through that I discovered the American bases stations, and of course every ship in the Seventh Fleet had their onboard radio station. Yes, I, I actually heard pre-Elvis rock and roll, the, the real Little Richard doing rather than the cleaned up, slightly cleaned up Elvis version or the even more cleaned up Pat Boone version of the same song. By the time he got to Pat Boone, it was, but the first time I heard that kind of music and the blues and John Lee Hooker and, and Muddy Waters. Give a me a bit of John Lee Hooker then. Uh, oh. What would that be? Da, 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 da. I got dimples <laughs> on your jaw. You got them dimples on your jaw. Yeah. <laughs> So that's your early music with your ear plastered to the... Uh, yes. Or really stuck on this uh, speaker mm. downstairs in your parents' house, uh, just up above or in the hills of right. Chartin. So that's right. quite a picture. Were you an only child or...? No, no, there are five of us. I was only the black sheep, the, you know, the eldest. I have a, a younger brother and then three younger sisters. And you're the one who stayed in Hong Kong? Yes. yes. And they went to Sweden or...? Well... In 1963, the mission decided to transfer my dad to Penang, and we uh, went there on a, on a trip to see it. 
and playing in a band here and, you know, wearing my hair down to my shoulders. I mean, what age are you in 63? 63, I would have been 17, mm. or late 16, 17. There was no way in hell I was going to move from exciting Hong Kong to boring Penang, you know. I mean, if you... If you're into going for a nice holiday, great place. But to play rock and roll, uh, not quite. So I said, well, thanks very much, but uh, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm staying here. Yeah. And, of course, my dad said, well, okay, using a bit of reverse psychology. He said, well, I tell you what, uh, I'll pay your school fees and you pay for everything else yourself. So I said, yeah, no problem. He didn't know that I was probably making more than him playing at private parties and what they call tea dances back in those days, Saturday, Sunday afternoons from, you know, 4 to 6.30, playing, you know, the dances of the era. Not the sort of British colonial real tea dances where they played palm court music and it was all very fond. This was... Twist and rock and roll and the Watusi and you know. All and this was for what kind of people would have attended that? Mostly local people, right. lots of kids from school, mm. all kinds of people. You know, triads, <laughs> uh, off-duty ballroom girls. They were all mingled. There was never any trouble. And what uh, would they serve at the tea dances? Tea. <laughs> yes. But the more sort of local related ones, say in uh, Yamati, Mongkok and, and further up Nathan Road, it would be uh, Ole, you know, Pu'er Cha, with, say, uh, one basket of dim sum of your choice. If you went to, say, the Golden Phoenix, which was a dairy farm-owned restaurant and nightclub in Manson House, which has now the Giordano biggest sort of flagship store right across from the mosque, there they serve, you got a choice of a mini burger or a small hot dog and a Coke or 7-Up. Uh, it depended more on the uh, organization who owned the club. And who would you have been singing with at that time? Uh, it was a band called The Continentals, spelt with a K, of course. five youths, one young piano player who, who went to La Salle and is Uncle Ray's nephew, and two Chinese guys, a drummer and a guitarist singer who were Chinese but born in Jamaica who'd come back to Hong Kong. A French Did they bring reggae then? No, it was, that was pre-reggae. I think it was more ska in those days, and uh, 
Now that you mention it, I had an after-school job. I've always done all sorts of things, and I have very thick skin and absolutely no fear. Being fearless, I, I went and applied for jobs that I had no qualifications for. I wasn't old enough, but I got a job with a, a small record label who eventually signed us and, and put us out, but also did concerts. So speaking of, of ska and reggae, the first concert I worked on backstage was Millie Small. Oh, little Millie, you know, my boy, lollipop. That was a sort of Jamaican, cleaned up sort of commercial sound. My boy, lollipop. came here, performed at the City Hall. And what you did? I'm just backstage gopher, basically, you know. If we go back then, so you're, mm. you, you did a little bit of backstage stuff, you're then uh, playing with the Continentals right. in those. So we're, we're now into, uh, you know, looking at the 1960s. Um, now, at that time, there was also, uh, you know, Bruce Lee's brother Robert would right. have had his own band. Yes, the Thunderbirds. Yes, yes. and there was a, you know, it was, was it quite a vibrant scene of locals? Oh, or were they, doing, were they creating their own music or were they just doing covers? Um, we have been credited with being the first local band to write our own music. And that was thanks to uh, the, the boss of Orbit Records, a British lady called Jerry Scott, G-E-R-Y Scott, who was uh, an, a very popular jazz singer in the Soviet Union. So she was not known anywhere else. And she set up a little record company and production company and set herself up as a, an impresario, is what they called it back in the day, in Chunking Mansions when that first opened. And it was a brand new prestigious building in Nathan Road. They had a record bar where you could play singles and listen on, on earphones and then, then buy them. So I asked her for a job after school, yeah, she gave me a job, made a, made a few dollars. I used to dress up in a suit and tie. I was 5'11 from when I was 12, so I'd dress up in a suit and tie, go to the peninsula lobby, pick up American tourists and take them shopping and make a commission. Rolex watches, Harry Layla, Mohan, Taylors were just in the vicinity. Hankow Road for Swatow Linens for the, the blue-haired ladies from, you know, M M Mississippi or wherever they came from. What was your first guitar? Oh, I actually played bass in those days. It was a Hofner hollow-body guitar, exactly like the one uh, Paul McCartney eventually famously used and and still uses now i didn't buy it because the beatles used because the beatles hadn't started i bought it because it was light martin booth does that name ring yeah a the bell? author yeah, of, of guilo. guilo yes well he was in my same class as well and he wanted to be the bass player and we went together and we somehow convinced him that he should be our press agent now we're talking, you know, 16, 17-year-old kids in KG5 forming a band. And we'd read somewhere that uh, successful bands and Cliff Richard and these people had a press agent. We had no idea what a press agent did. 
But uh, yes, he he's oh yeah that you know because he, he wanted to be a writer, so he would write little press releases and send them by post to the South China Morning Post and the Hong Kong Standard. I think it was called the Tiger Standard in those days. It was never sent to the uh, local press because none of us could translate. So. Yes, he was our press agent, and I was one of the few Hong Kong friends who visited him before he passed away. It was very right. sad. Yeah. Well, I, th- th- for me, this is very fascinating mm. because I loved the book Guaylo, oh, and then yeah. he's leaving at the end mm. as a you know seven, eight year old. Right. But then it's left a big question mark mm. because, of course, the idea was that this book would never be published. Mm. Or I think he comes. I, I apologies. Mm. He comes right. as a seven year old. I think he's leaving right. as a right, ten, right, eleven year old yeah. at the time. And then, of course, in the early two thousands, Martin Booth. Who was a very right, established right, author, mm-hmm. has a brain tumor, and he's right. writing this for his sons who say, mm-hmm. Well, Dad, we you know, we don't know about much about your right, early right, life. Right. This was never supposed to be a, a published book as such. Right, right. And uh, and then right at the end is a question mark with his mum about, you know, the, their love of Hong Kong and whether right, they're gonna come right. back. And you've mm. just confirmed that that yeah, they did. Yeah. Oh, he always did love Hong Kong. Do you know, I think it's very use- interesting, though, about well, KG5. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I know a number of people who've, over the generations, have been Hong Kong long-stayers. Mm. Right. And also, I mean, the fact is, you come here at four. I right. can see why those early roots were mm. already there. That more or less was what made me stay when I was 17, because the contrast between Hong Kong, booming Hong Kong in those days, with refugees, but, you know, with that can-do attitude of thriving, we're going to make it, you know, everyone was just getting on with things. Chim Sa Choi, 1963, brand new Chunking Mansions, Bayside nightclub in the basement of Chunking Mansions. Bayside is very famous among local people, but not a lot of people know it was a money laundering operation for the Marcos family. You know, and they had a coffee shop on street level and the nightclub in the basement. And the coffee shop was a hangout for China watchers. With growing up here, I mean, when Mm. you were growing up in your family, did you grow up bilingually? Also, were you eating lots of local food or was there a Swedish element to it all? This is going to sound terribly arrogant. I grew up trilingually, I'm sorry. But yeah, there was Chinese, Swedish and English. Food-wise... Shouting in for satay, meatballs that mum made, British canteen food at KG5 and Kowloon Jr. I sang in the 60s mainly. And I'd promised myself to stop and go behind the scenes when I turned 30, which I managed to do. So I'd wanted to produce and write and, you know, worked my way up through EMI to BMG, eventually ending up as managing director of BMG Pacific Limited. So I'd done all of that. And then when I was about to turn 60, I said, well, hey, I enjoy singing and everything. Why, why not? So I got back into it. And, of course, being of a certain age and being fairly well known from the 60s and and the 70s. I had a band in the 70s called Ming as well, which was all local uh, Chinese except for me. And way before Shanghai Tang was even famous, we all dressed in ancient sort of emperor's robes and stuff. What can I say to you Except that I'm sorry 
Thanks to Anders Nelson. Next week, Anders tells me more about the Hong Kong nightlife in the 60s and his singing and acting life here. Thanks for listening and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage.